calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore Podcast, and this is Digital Folklore Unplugged. Unplugged episodes are where we ditch all the fancy production and narrative elements, and we bring you the raw or only slightly edited interviews with our folklore experts. On today's show, Mason and I got to speak with Dr. Sarah Clito and Dr. Brittany Warman from the Carter Hall School of Folklore and the Fantastic. I'm Dr. Brittany Warman. And I'm Dr. Sarah Clito. And together we are the Carter Hall School of Folklore and the Fantastic, an online school dedicated to bringing folklore outside of the academy. You'll hear early on that we were interviewing them primarily as part of our Why is Old Tech Spooky episode from last season. And so we touched on themes of the gothic, nostalgia, and things like that. But we didn't stop there. Sarah and Brittany are a wealth of knowledge. They run a school for folklore studies, and they love to share their wisdom and passion for all things folklore. So we couldn't help ourselves. We jumped into questions around folklore basics, terminology, transmission, categorization, social issues, and how studying folklore enriches our lives. Okay, let's get unplugged. We earned our PhDs in folklore from The Ohio State University in 2018. And we earned our master's in folklore from George Mason University in 2012, somehow. <laughs> and you should definitely take the show on the road. <laughs> I think you I think you guys work well together. You should maybe right? do something based off of that. We have heard this before. <laughs> yeah. So um, here's the thing I want to dig into. One of the episodes that we are planning in conjunction with another podcast called Imaginary Worlds is the concept of analog horror. It's, you know, why when we look at old VHS tapes and CRT monitors and this older technology, why do we feel this sense of dread and intrigue? And as I was reading some of your descriptions about crumbling castles and things that are a little bit tattered that were once really clean, representing Gothic, it's, it started to click in. Is is like, is this, this the nostalgia that comes with a show like Stranger Things? Is that kind of a modern Gothic take? Oh, that's a really good question. I do think it's playing with 
similar ideas at the very least. And I think you could make a good case that something like Stranger Things is at least gothic adjacent, if not like full on gothic itself. So where where I would start with this, Brittany might dive in somewhere else, but there's a scholar of the gothic named Fred Bodding. And his explanation for the gothic is basically that it is the past coming back to haunt the present. So if you think of it in terms of old technology that is sort of like crumbling, you know, we maybe don't have ways to access it quite so readily anymore. You can definitely think of that as a newer vehicle for potentially exploring the Gothic. But where we diverge from this, take it, Brittany. (laughs) So where we diverge from this is that we would go a little more specific and say that it's not just any past. It's the folkloric past more often than not. It's these ideas of superstition and uh, monsters and things like that that come back and break through our modern world, our civilized world, our world of rational thinking and remain even though we tell ourselves that we've moved on beyond that. Yeah, this feeling that we should be past it and that is, you know, ye old stuff and like we're, we're more evolved, you know, but the idea that it's still there with us, like lurking underneath the surface, getting ready to erupt at any time. That's the Gothic. Yes, that's what we feel is the Gothic. And that's why we see it so often interact with folklore and why that's so fascinating and needs to be discussed more, we think. Yeah. And also, I mean, to bring it back around to technology, I mean, you can see why old technology is so often like a vehicle for gothic or for you know sometimes horror that kind of slips from gothic a little bit but because it's stuff that we are theoretically past right but that used to be so integral that used to be something we interacted with all the time but that now is inaccessible and that creates a space for it to potentially become gothic i also think I, there's a really cool connection with the idea of these things decaying like film yeah like not being as good as it once was, audio going out, the colors and picture isn't as good as it used to be. Static. <laughs> yeah, everyone is already always worried about losing material because it's on old formats. And that seems very gothic to me, too. And very folkloric. Yeah, just that sense of decay and loss, I guess. <laughs> oh, is, is there also kind of the fact that we misremember the glory of some of this old stuff, too, is like when you look at it? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yes. You pop in a VHS tape that you used to remember as like the height of technology and it being crystal clear picture. And you're like, oh, 480p kind of sucked. I can see all these lines. I can see the equivalent of pixels now. And that's kind of jarring compared to what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it can be a little bit creepy, too, because you're not used to it anymore. You're primed for something very different and then don't get that. And when you see that's this older technology trying to work, there's definitely potential for a feeling of uncanniness, which is definitely part of the Gothic as well. Which dovetails with what you were saying just a minute ago, Perry, about, you know, remembering it in this like golden, nostalgic sort of way. And then when the experience of revisiting it doesn't match up to your memories of it, that dissonance can open us up to all kinds of things like the Gothic. It also makes me think of, um, so the Gothic's heyday, when it really got started as a, as a mode of literature and art and things like that, was around the same time that the Romantic movement was going on in England. And 
people, part of the romantic movement was this fascination with the way things used to be, this lost culture, these lost things that we want to go back to, that we want to reconnect with. And I think that is coming out in the Gothic. I think there's a reason they were popular at the same time. It's, it has a lot to do with a reaction to the Enlightenment and things like that. But I just think that's fascinating. And I think it's also noteworthy that when the Gothic surged again about a hundred years later, like the end of the at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 19th century, that was a time with a lot of very very quick technological change and a lot of gothic stuff explicitly sort of engaged with ideas of new technology. So it just, it all goes together. Maybe that's something to dig into. So I think we touched a little bit on the uncanny piece of this. So we could probably dig in a little bit more there, but there's also that grappling with change piece, because I think um, one of the things that Mason and I really want to bring out of some of these things, and you heard it in that first episode, is so much of the the folklore that exists is a reaction to some inflection point within culture, some low-grade thing that's irritating society in some way. What are some of the low-grade things that would kind of create a gothic anything? Another really good question. Yeah. What is gothic a reaction to, I guess, would be a, a better way of asking that. Well, to me, the gothic is always rooted in anxiety. And sometimes those anxieties are small things, but sometimes they're really big things, too, that are really difficult to talk about. It's the kind of things that you don't want to bring up at the dinner table, like, you know, questions about sexuality, about colonialism, about racism, and bigotry in all kinds of senses. And for the Gothic, it seems like they use small things to talk about big things. Yeah, we actually just filmed a 10-episode course on vampires for um, a, a company called Wondrium. And we spent a lot of time talking specifically about like, okay, why do we tell vampire stories? And most vampire stories, not all of them, but a lot of them are gothic. And like, you know, the, the king of all vampire stories, pretty much Dracula is hella gothic. Like it is peak gothic in so many ways. And all those things that Brittany said, things like anxieties around sexuality and romance, around race, about colonialism, about like really any sort of anxiety really can be explored through the gothic and through folklore in all kinds of different ways. And it seems to get, they get entwined together very frequently. It's easier for us. I, I think this applies to most of humanity. It's easier for us to tell a story about something to, than to confront it directly. Mm -hmm. And the Gothic is all about doing that. And folklore is often all about doing that, mm -hmm. finding ways to engage with the world in a you know, personal and artistic way with a, a lot of other people. <laughs> Like I'm um, halfway through rereading The Castle of Otranto right now, which I haven't read in years. And that is arguably the first gothic novel or at least first supernatural gothic novel. And the family that it's about is just, they're absolutely Crazy. bananas. Like they're, they're terrible. <laughs> they treat each other terribly, especially the the father figure. And he like wants to marry like this young girl even though he's already married and his wife is like standing right there and his son is just crushed by this giant helmet like it's all completely ridiculous and over the top but you know it lets you explore like okay what happens if the family structure is destabilized like this is a completely melodramatic way of thinking about like 
the breakdown of the family unit, the breakdown of like an aristocratic way of perceiving the world around you in a, in a way sort of exploding all of the different institutions that we expect to hold society together. And I do want to note at this point that it has been frequently argued that the Gothic is ultimately a pretty conservative mode because at the end of the story, all of these things, all of these questions are usually resolved without anything changing. Like mm. the status quo is reinstated. But there's this period of extreme instability in the middle where all of it is questioned that I find very interesting. And yes. in a lot of more contemporary Gothic literature, these institutions explode and then stay exploded. There is no okay. reinstitution of the status quo in the same way. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> does, does that come back to maybe in some of this earlier literature, the person writing it had a sense of helplessness or hopelessness. Uh, we can do all of this stuff, but it's all going to stay the same no matter what. So they saw, saw that as realism. Or what, what do you think is the heart of that? I think it varies depending on the person who told it. You know, like I'm yeah. thinking of Mary Shelley, you know, who wrote Frankenstein and was incredibly radical for the time period. So I don't think that, you know, when she was writing Frankenstein, she was thinking, well, everything's always going to stay the same. Nothing will ever change. But I also don't know that like Horace Walpole of like the, the murderous supernatural falling helmets was really envisioning a lot of social change himself. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, it's, when you talked about Mary Shelley, I think that that is a good one to bring up because Mary Shelley, at the end of Frankenstein, there is a certain amount of restoration to the status quo because Frankenstein and the monster go off into the snowy tundra and are never mm. seen again. But there's also an open-endedness there yeah. that she really doesn't shut it down completely. Yeah. Having not read any of these recently, I'm wondering if there's almost then, if it's not a resolute kind of, oh my God, it's going to stay the same no matter what, then I'm wondering if it's wanting to unsettle the reader and say, imagine a world where all this stayed the same. Wouldn't that be horrible? Isn't that the real horror? That's what we think. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why when we come across a lot of the scholarly arguments that say, no, like the Gothic is still conservative. I'm like, yeah. did you read that? Like, yeah, there's so much possibility, so much instability in here. And in a lot of them, it feels sort of nightmarish at the end mm. for nothing to change, but also sometimes nightmarish for things to change. It's just but it's all about this unsettledness that never really completely dispels. I was I was wondering, and it, it might be a little bit of a basic thing, but I was wondering for the sake of like introducing the concept of Gothic, which is something I don't know much about. My initial reaction, I imagine a lot of people's would be that it's tied to that very specific aesthetic and architecture. Uh, and it's, it's like a medieval time in Europe, right? Like um, <laughs> how, how much of Gothic is like married to an aesthetic and an architecture versus the other hallmarks of it? Like as Yeah, we've been and I want to get you to talk about space after that. Yes. <laughs> we would love to. <laughs> we would love to. Yes. Yeah. So um, to answer your question, Mason, the Gothic is very difficult to define super precisely because there's just a lot of differing opinions about what makes something Gothic. But what it ultimately comes down to is sort of a bunch of things put together and reaching a critical mass where it tips over into Gothic. So if you see things like decaying castles and fainting maidens and haunted houses, deep, dark forests, <laughs> family secrets, curses, all that kind of stuff. Threat of the supernatural. Yes, of course. 
Once you reach that critical mass, the story really just tips over in there. And that's pretty much the only thing people can agree on when they're trying to define what the Gothic is. We do like Fred Bodding's idea that it's the past coming back to haunt the present. But again, we would take it even more specific and say that it's often related to folklore when that past comes back. The folkloric past coming back to haunt the present. And to complicate things further, everything that Brittany mentioned in that list, like any one of those things or a couple of those things could show up in you know, a, a story. Yeah. And it wouldn't necessarily be gothic at all. Like not all stories that happen to have a castle in them are gothic. Not even every vampire story is necessarily gothic. It really is that sheer accumulation of stuff that makes it <laughs> gothic, which sounds ridiculous. But another key thing about the gothic is that it is a mode of excess. Like there's too much. There are too many feelings. There's too much stuff. There's too much melodrama. It's completely over the top. And that excessiveness is part of what makes it gothic. So the overwhelming is a part of that, like a, a major part of that. Yeah, I really think so. Interesting. It's weird. And it's very funny when contemporary authors play with that or point it out or sort of like um, parody it. It just really opens the field for all sorts of really, really funny things. I'm curious what you mean by that, being not familiar with the genre. What I was thinking of was one of my favorite vampire books that I think is pretty gothic called Sunshine by Robin McKinley. And it is set in a world that is pretty post-apocalyptic. It's not like what we think of as classic gothic. It's not really like moldering castles and dungeons and stuff. It's like a world that has coffee shops. The protagonist is a baker who works in a coffee shop. And at one point, supernatural hijinks ensue and she wakes up in this room that she thinks of as like a fever dream of the castle of Otranto because it's so full of just gothic stuff that she's like am I hallucinating like what the <laughs> hell am I what am I looking at who made this this is ridiculous so it is a peak gothic space that has been inserted into a more contemporary gothic text literally to make fun of the old aesthetic while continuing to use that aesthetic in other ways like there's kind of a techno gothic decay aesthetic that dominates a lot of the rest of the book but there's this weird horse waffle throwback that i just find incredibly hilarious which interestingly is a pretty good segue into talking about the future and gothic and space and sci-fi and what happens when they merge because the gothic absolutely can exist in space. It's not the exact same kind of things. Instead of a castle, we might get a Death Star. Instead of a coffin, you might get a like chamber that you have to sleep in or anything like that. Instead of uh, running through a dark forest, you're running through the maze-like labyrinth of a spaceship. But all of these things can be twisted to fit in with a more futuristic space kind of setting. So crumbling spaceships like Star Wars, it would be more like Gothic versus Star Trek, which is everything is gleaming and new. And Yeah, very much. Yeah. What about cyberpunk, you know, like Blade Runner type of stuff where you have this encroaching newness on the oldness? I think it's a little different, but sometimes played with similar ideas. Like I don't tend to think of it in quite full-on gothic terms whereas like there are things from star wars where i'm just like like are you guys even kidding around like this is the most gothic 
that I've ever seen. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you brought that up, it clicked into place. It's like, oh, yeah. Yes, it really, I mean, yeah. it really is. It's it's really funny to watch it through that lens and thinking about how over the top and melodramatic and full of feelings it is. And, and family drama, yes. and family secrets. Yes, all <laughs> kinds of secrets that are revealed. Mm-hmm. I love it, but... Yeah. And as yesterday, you said the ruined spaceship, the ruined Death Star in the yeah. uh, most recent film. Well, maybe not the most recent film, the episode uh, nine. Episode nine. Yeah. Where they yeah. see you see them, there's a battle or a fight on the ruined Death Star. And that's just yeah. probably the peak where they really just embrace the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. completely skeletal structure. Yeah. And yeah, that's amazing. Super gothic. And there are, you know, there are other examples of it too. Star Wars is probably by far the most famous one that we could throw out there. But there's a book we're going to read in the upcoming class called Sabella that has a vampire on this planet called Novo Mars, which isn't even like actually Mars, but is a planet in another system. And it's honestly one of the most gothic things I've ever read in my entire life, even though it's all taking place in outer space with like space shuttles and hopping between these different planets. It has a very like sci-fi aesthetic, but it's just ridiculously intensely gothic in terms of the aesthetic, the way that the heroine dresses, the kinds of issues that come up about family and sexuality and being super tortured and enclosed and all kinds of threats. And they're just, it's very, very gothic. So there are many different stories that do this, even though we almost never think of outer space as being gothic. It can be. Another good one that comes up often in scholarship is the movie Alien. Yeah. That is a story that is very claustrophobic feeling. There's a lot of dread. There's a lot of, you know, discussion about things like gender sort of bubbling below the surface. Even though it mm-hmm. seems like a alien monster movie, it is yeah. definitely dealing with some of that the same kinds of things. You can tell even in the way it's lit in many scenes. Mm. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. So flashing back then, when you think about some of the markers of Gothic, like, you know, the the excess, the kind of looking back and, and seeing things crumbling and all these ideas of encroaching and grappling with social issues and all that. One of the um, things that somebody suggested to us, and this was not a folklorist, but it may make sense is that when we think about kind of old technology bridging into where we are now, there's not only some of the nostalgia and the looking back and then realizing that things weren't as perfect and having this uncanniness and um, looking at old technology and seeing how it's more faded and the colors aren't as bright as we thought and everything else. But there's also this this, um, kind of tipping point that we hit as a society between everything being, I need to pull this off the shelf and plug it into more on-demand and more 24-hour news cycles and uh, all of this other stuff. When we think about some of the social issues that may uh, that that may make one of these genres spring up or one of these folkloric expression styles uh, spring up, do you see those types of tipping points as being critical, or is that kind of a red herring? I mean, when I think about when the Gothic has really been popular, there were things that sort of directly precipitated it. So like like I mentioned before, when it was first getting going at the end of the 1700s, there was romanticism, which was a direct reaction to uh, in the Enlightenment and a sort of rejection of the purely rational mind in favor of 
mystery and feelings and such. Yeah. And so that was that was definitely responding to something very particular. And then when it sort of res- there was a resurgence of it at the end of the 1800s, it was a reaction to a lot of different things, but a lot of political things like the um, the rapidly declining power of the British Empire was a big, big reason why people felt scared, why people felt like they were on the precipice of change and wanting to and maybe wanting to cling to those things and then realizing some of the things from the past are pretty scary when you yeah. look at them. Yeah. And now I think that there are things in place that could signify some sort of gothic resurgence, but it would be a very different form. And I think that there's potential there, but I'm not sure what it would look like. Yeah. I think some of the stuff that we're seeing with space gothic, that kind of thing, or more of a technology-heavy gothic could be the the forms that it takes on. But yeah, the gothic often resurges in times of instability or times of rupture. So I would not be surprised if we saw some right. kind of technological gothic resurgence. I mean, who knows? We could be in the middle of one right now. <laughs> right. It also it also really has something to do with where we are right now. I think we're almost to the place where things are starting to get a little bit scary on the technology side, much like it was at the end of the 1800s for England. It seems like we're almost to the point where technology can get a little uncanny and scary. I'm thinking of things like self-driving cars or AI. I'm thinking of AI art. <laughs> yes, AI Me art, too. exactly. And that's a that's mm-hmm. a perfect example. And what does that mean for society? What does it mean for art? And these are the kinds of questions that the Gothic is really good to try to try to come up with some sort of answer with. Yeah, I mean, the Gothic intersecting with art is a huge thing. I mean, think about something like the picture of Dorian Gray, you know, how these things can mingle. And then if you throw in technology in the form of AI art, like if someone hasn't already written a story about that, yeah. <laughs> like that needs to happen immediately. More of our interview with Dr. Sarah Clito and Dr. Brittany Warman after this. Hey listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com slash unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. And long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin and clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. It's interesting how both nebulous and concrete Gothic seems to be in that there's these mm-hmm. all of these hallmarks as discussed, but also you can't pin it down to a, a list of things. It's yeah. it's an aesthetic, it's tropes, it's motifs. I'm I'm trying to think of like the best way for someone who's just never heard of it to think of it. And I was wondering if either of you had like a here's the like if someone has no idea what Gothic is. Here's this thing. Like, here's a quick summary. Or I don't know if that's possible. Oh, I mean, I feel like we could at least get them to think of the right vibe yeah. pretty quick. You know, we could even say, like, you know, have you ever read or seen a version of Dracula, you know, or like think about where Dracula lives and then let them think about that for a second and then be like, that's probably the gothic. I feel like that's a fairly quick way into at least getting their brain in the right space. Right. Because some of those things are just so culturally familiar, even if you haven't. Mm-hmm. read or seen anything to do with Dracula, you're probably still familiar with the character because he pops up on cereal boxes and advertisements and things like that. So you have at least a small idea of who he is and what he represents and what he looks like. Yeah. Or even say like, you know, think of the scariest haunted house that you could possibly imagine, like the one that you absolutely wouldn't want to go into. And there, I feel like you could end up veering more into horror, horror than yeah. the gothic. And those things are kind of different, but it still might probably wouldn't work as well as Dracula, would it? Well, to me, the word I keep coming back to to describe it is haunted. It's haunted by the past. It's haunted by family secrets you don't want to come out. It's that feeling of being haunted. So anything that you associate with that feeling, I think, Mm -hmm. gives a general impression of what the Gothic is. The last thing that just popped into my head, there's an amazing writer named Angela Carter who wrote a bunch of gothic fairy tales that we adore. They're so good. But she describes the gothic as dread glamour. And I always thought that was really good. Like it gives you like that vibe in two words. So go, Angela. <laughs> I, I really like that. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. Um, Isn't that good? I wish yeah. I could take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> that, it's a good pair of words. I have mm-hmm. one more quick thing. I've just had a realization that perhaps dawned too late. Um, are either of you familiar with Sunless Seas or Fallen London? Uh, they're both, Sunless Seas was like a bigger, it was a video game property, but it's very much Victorian Gothic uh, in the writing of it. <laughs> and, and in talking about this, I was like, this, like the vibe that everything you're talking about really evoked these games. And I looked it up and they were like, oh yeah, it's very influenced by Victorian Gothic. And I just didn't know if it was a touchstone for you at all. Sunless Seas and what's the other one? Uh, Fallen London. They're like choose your own adventure games sort of but it's all very text heavy and story based. That's Um, really cool. I think I've heard of Fallen London but I haven't played it. 
but I've written both of those names down now. Nice. They were some of my favorite things and it didn't really hit me that it was, I just kind of played them to, to play them. I was like, this writing's really good and this mood is really specific and hard to put a word to. And I think that word might've been gothic. Awesome. <laughs> So, so Dracula, Gothic, Twilight, not so much, even though it has vampires. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, in the sense that there are vampires and that it's often cloudy in Seattle area. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like the aesthetic isn't really. I guess there are some scenes with castles, but yeah, the aesthetic isn't. It's more it's kind just of not urban, there, yeah. Yeah, urban fantasy. I mean, there are moments that, that edge closer into it. Like, yeah, when they yeah. actually bring in like a castle, I think they go to like Italy for a hot second or something. Like that's legit pretty gothic. Yeah. But when they're hanging out, you know, in Forks, Seattle and like a, you know, standard restaurant or something, that, that's not, that's right. really not gothic. And then Discovery of Witches, I'm not sure if you've seen that kind of in between somewhere. So I actually somehow have not read or seen that. I okay. suspect the gothic quotient is there, yeah. if not through the roof. <laughs> it is It is higher. I mean, there's tons of location yeah. stuff in there between Italy and, you know, it, England and everywhere else. So I was going to say it's set in Oxford, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, it kind of goes, starts in Oxford and then kind of goes throughout the EU uh, as well with yeah. lots of, you know, Romania and everywhere else in it. So a little bit, you know, lots of crumbling structures, but then also juxtaposed against modern England as well. One other thing, I mean, Brittany talked about haunting. One of the, and I hate to pull on this analog thing one more time. Um, because I feel like I may be trying to go somewhere that we don't need to, but I, I just want to see if there's something here too. Um, when you're talking about haunting from a folkloric perspective and a sociological perspective or anthological perspective, we probably see that through a certain lens. I'm wondering if you could articulate what that is, because when we get to this analog piece, there are some tropes around haunted video game cartridges, haunted DVDs, haunted yeah. you know pieces of technology. Is there anything there that you see as particularly interesting to talk about? <laughs> well, I mean, I was just uh, just had my mind blown by a video on that came out recently that is about the internet game or the the internet sensation that wasn't actually a game but reported to be a game. A story about a game. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Kill Switch. So it's a creepy pasta. Yeah, it's essentially a creepy pasta. It was about a video game that was, you know, had all this crazy I, these ideas behind it and all these scary things associated with it. And what blew my mind about it is that it turns out it was actually written by one of my favorite authors, Catherine Valenti. Mm. And I was shocked and just delighted to discover this because it really took on a life of its own on the internet and people added to the story and made up things to go with it. People tried to, you know, like they went on searches to find the last remaining copies of this game. And it was it was all made up. But when Valenti talks about it, she doesn't claim ownership over it. She's like, it went out of my hands. It became something of the internet. Because so cool. it really did go viral. Yeah. And I think that that is, I, I think that that's a fascinating thing that can happen on the internet. Because, I mean, the same, you know, I was thinking about this when I was listening to the episode, the sample episode that you sent, when the context of Slenderman, again, you see that, you know, there was an actual author of Slenderman, somebody who came up with it first. But it didn't matter. And it sort of went into folklore regardless of that fact. 
Yeah, even if there was an author that you can pinpoint, which almost never happens in folklore, but in internet folklore, sometimes you can. Uh, the because it becomes folklore, it means there is no definitive author of the story anymore. There are a billion versions of Slenderman now, and even though Cat Valenti wrote the original story about Kill Switch, it went viral and turned into many other stories that became its own internet legend. And I wanted to add to what Brittany was saying about Kill Switch. Part of what made that stick, I think, as a viral story about, you know, older technology is that it was older technology, right? Like this video game apparently would erase itself every, like if you played it to the end, it would like be gone and there was no way you could play it again. There's no way you could show it to anyone else and talk about it. I mean, talk about haunted art right there. And then like scarcity, the idea that the, um, there were only a few copies made. Yeah, the company had only made like a very limited number. And even if you did have it, it would probably be hard to play because it was supposedly a video game from the 80s. So there's so much here about it being a story about old technology. And that collection of stories that it came from actually was all about old technology. You would probably get a huge kick out of it. Um, do you remember what it was called, Brittany? The was it Imaginarium something or... We can look it up. Imagine it's, it's, I think it's invisible something. We can look it up and send it to you if you're interested. Invisible cities, maybe? Mm. Maybe, but it, all of the stories were about old technology or weird technology that had supposedly profoundly influenced the course of how technology had developed, but was all forgotten. And of course, none of it was real, but all of these stories functioned on the basis that it was forgotten technology. I love that. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating read. Yeah, yeah it's, it's great. Cool. It's really fantastic. <laughs> what I'm hoping is we we have another episode that's really going to be just kind of a back to basics. You know, the questions about folklore that people should have answered if they really want to uh, study the topic. Because again, this, I think folklore is a term that we use as a, as a society a lot, but without any kind of precision. And we create a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstandings because of that. And I want to give people a chance to come up to speed and consider themselves on this journey with all of us. So the first thing I want to do is disambiguate some terms for us. You know, when somebody says the word folklore, what is what does that mean from a discipline perspective? Well, there are a billion different definitions of folklore at this point and I think they all they all can offer something really interesting and worth hanging on to. I think it's Lynn McNeil who says that folklore is informal traditional culture, which I think is pretty good. It's pretty short and sweet and easy to hang on to. Our this this kills me. Our advisor back when we were be yeah. <laughs> smiling pretty. Our advisor said as a shorthand once, like just off the cuff during a class that he was teaching, that folklore was stuff that went well with beer. And I just laughed, <laughs> could not stop laughing for like five minutes. And like, he's not he's wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> but yeah, like another one that gets thrown out a lot is that it's artistic communication in small groups, that it's informal culture. That's Dan Benamos. That's Dan Benamos, yes. And as far as what, as a discipline, we're kind of, we've, I've heard us described as the child of English and anthropology. <laughs> and mm -hmm. to a certain extent, that that's pretty true. We exist somewhere between those two disciplines. 
where we're looking at stories, but we're looking at the stories people tell each other informally around campfires and, you know, at, at lunch meetings and just things that people say uh, in a variety of, of different places with different peoples. We're looking at the way that culture develops within very small groups, very simple ways of, not simple ways, that's, that's not fair. I feel like it's often the stuff that people say and the stories they tell in context where they don't think it's yes. important and when it doesn't matter. That's what matter, I was going to say. Which conversely means it, it really, really it does, does matter, matter yeah. because it's it's kind of what is most true to them when they feel like they're not editing, often when they feel like they're not performing. And of course, you can perform folklore. Folklore, you can perform folk tales or, you know, their storytelling gatherings of all kinds. But I feel like if you really drill down, folklore is the fabric of everyday life. That's what Brittany and I often come back to in what we say. Yeah, I like that way of fabric putting it. Fabric of everyday life. Yeah, that reminds me of the Zora Hurston folklore is the boiled yeah. down juice of human living type of definitions, the fabric of everyday life. Yeah, I like that too. So good. Yeah. yeah. The only thing that I would, you know, a, a fabric sort of gets to it. But I think that what drew me to folklore was that these are the little artistic things that we do in life that people dismiss as not important. Like Sarah said, it's the the ways that we honor the past and look to the future. But it's also, you know, the ways we do that is are through these artistic things like telling stories, making music, having festivals, doing pottery, cooking, cooking. Yes. All of these things that express creativity that people dismiss as not important or not art in some way, but in reality mean probably more than a lot of art does, you know, in certain circumstances anyway. Yeah. All of that reminds me of, so when I've taught, you know, like intro to folklore in a university context, one of the first big hills that I pretty much always had with my students was that they didn't think they had folklore. They thought everyone else had folklore, like cool people who lived in other countries and had cool traditions, like they had folklore, but they did not believe that they had their own folklore. And one, of course they do, everyone has folklore, but one of the easiest ways to cut through that and redirect them to their own folklore often was through food ways. So the folkloric study of food, getting them to think about like their family traditions around what they make and when, especially like if you think, okay, tell me about like your family's Thanksgiving or your family's Christmas. I'm like, well, you know, my dad always has to make the turkey, but my sister's a vegetarian. So stuff got weird. And then we had to add and before we know it, they've been going on for 15 minutes about all of these traditions and family politics and stories and intricacies. And then I'm like, still think you don't have any folklore. And they're like, oh. <laughs> nice. I really like I haven't heard that example before. I really like that. That was my go to in the classroom. It always worked. <laughs> yeah, like like the regional stuff. If you go into one area of the country, everybody's about green bean casserole during this time of the year and another, you know. See, and Brittany had that in her family, but we didn't have it in mine because my family wasn't originally from the South. Oh, so nice. my family was. So we had green yeah. bean casserole for sure. Yeah. And I, th I think I heard Lynn McNeil talking once and she realized that uh, like up in the area that she lives in over in, in Utah, there's a thing that people do, which is anytime there's a funeral, they'll bring like um, mashed potatoes and people call funeral potatoes. A funeral potatoes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> 
you know, other areas of the country, they just don't do that. So, um, I mean, just we're thinking about these terms that people use and they get confused. I mean, just throw out like a grab bag of things and you can jump on one or two. We hear folklore, we hear folktale, we hear fairy tales, we hear legends, we hear urban legends or contemporary legends. And then, of course, you talked about food and the way that people uh, create uh, maybe even like fabrics and toys and all, all of that are different kinds of folklore. How do we start to really understand or use those terms appropriately? Because I think some people also, um, Mason talked about myths and legends. Um, I think for, for a lot of people, they just grab for a term and they come out with it and don't know how to apply that appropriately. How do we do that but with more precision? This is a question that comes up a lot. And I think that for the three really big kinds of narrative folklore, we would divide them up as folk tales, of which fairy tales are a part, and legends and myths, right? And then with folk tales, everybody knows that they're fictional stories. They're commonly, with fairy tales anyway, commonly set in far off lands with nondescript uh, sort of characters and nonspecific things about the real world. They take place in once upon a time space. Exactly. With a myth, um, a myth is something, according to folklorists, that is a very sacred story. This is a story that commonly has something to do with the creation of the world or gods and goddesses or why the world the way, is the way it is. And these stories are deeply true to people. So it's kind of the, the polar opposite of a folktale. Folktales, everybody knows they're not true. Mythology there are people or were people in the world that deeply believed in these stories and these concepts. So in the middle is legends. And legends are stories where you don't know if it's real or fake. It is a story where the question of belief must come up, even if it's ultimately rejected. So you listen to a legend and you think, do I believe in this or not? Like the legend invites you to wonder, did this really happen? And you could come down either way, but because it entertains that question, that's why it falls in the middle. Mm -hmm. That's why it's a legend. And legends are almost always rooted in real time, in real space. It could be, you know, the corner of Main Street and Elm, or it could be, you know, Great yeah. Britain, like was King Arthur real, like that kind of thing. Or it could be Slender Man. But all of these invite you to wonder and speculate on whether or not they're true. So it sits right in the middle between the folk tales, fairy tales, and then the myths on the other end of the spectrum. Right. I think and the other thing about legends is that they're often very local. Like you will hear a legend somewhere and yeah. somebody will say, it happened just up the street. And then you'll go somewhere else and somebody will tell the exact same legend and say, it happened just up this street. <laughs> and so, yeah. <laughs> and then there's also the the idea that folklorists often refer to as fof, which is friend of a friend. Like this didn't happen to me, but I heard from Susie's uncle that this happened. And so therefore it's gotta be true because I believe, you know, Susie's a really like smart person. Her uncle must be really smart, you know? <laughs> so it's that that connection with legends is really strong. Yeah, a chain of sort of tenuous credibility. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Dr. Sarah Clito and Dr. Brittany Warman. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. There's another thing that I think the general public doesn't know a lot about, which is categorization systems for folklore. I'm thinking like the ATU system for fairy tales. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. (laughs) Sure. So the ATU system isn't really as, as complicated as it sounds. Basically, there are a bunch of different versions of every fairy tale we know. There are there is a Cinderella from China, a Cinderella from America, a Cinderella from France. And all of these stories very clearly are Cinderella, but you but they all have different names. They're all from different places. They all have different like little details to them, depending on where the context of where they were told. All the shoes are different, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. But they're all recognizably following the same folklore pattern. And so in order to think about this collection of stories, a system was devised to number them as opposed to prioritizing one title, because obviously all of these tales have different titles to different people in different languages. And so if you refer to them as a, by a number, you, it was a shorthand way of talking about all of the tales and all of the different versions of a particular story. Yeah. And then, of course, we kind of can subdivide them down from there. Like, so for example, ATU 425 is Search for the Lost Husband. And that, you know, broadly encompasses anything that looks sort of like Beauty and the Beast. But then there's, you know, 425A, which, you know, looks more like Cupid and Psyche. And 425B, which has more of an emphasis on like whatever is going on with the enchanted beast character. And then C, which is more like the traditional Beauty and the Beast story as we tend to hear today. So there, and the numbers go on and the the subdivisions go on. So it really is just a way of grouping these stories together by plots so that we can find them and talk about them coherently, a way of just organizing so many different versions of the same story while trying not to prioritize one over the other. Of course, the ATU index still really works way better for European folk tales and fairy tales. There have been efforts at expanding it. It's definitely not perfect, but that's at least part of the thought process behind why it's done that way. Is there the equivalent of that or something that's striving to be that for contemporary legends or no? You know, as far as I know, I don't think there's one as comprehensive, but I will be perfectly honest that I am not super up to date on my legend research in the same way that I am with my fairy tale stuff. So I'm not sure. No, I I don't know of any. None that, yeah. that function in the same way. Yeah, I've looked and haven't seen anything. Yeah, I don't think so, but I am not 100% sure. Even as incomplete and Western prioritized as the ATU system is, it was still a huge undertaking that yeah. deserves a lot mm-hmm. of respect because that was just, it was a enormous, that, that was, was a lot, lot of work. work. <laughs> it was an enormous thing to do. So kudos to Stith Thompson and, and, and Uther. Sorry. <laughs> Can't fathom taking on a project of that scale. Yeah. No, it's mind-boggling. 
I was thinking it'd be good to get you two speaking on like the the idea of not having an authoritative canon or like a centralized version of stories too. Yes, for something to really be folklore, there need to be multiple coexisting versions of it and no one version is ultimately correct. We very frequently get asked some version of like so what's the real version of Snow White? You know, what's the oldest version? What's the most authentic version of Snow White? The original. <laughs> the original. Oh gosh, yeah. The thing is to us, A, you're almost never going to be able to find it because it's from the oral tradition. We're never going to be able to know what the earliest original who authored it version is. It's just not actually the urtext. The urtext. It's actually not possible for us to know that. And B, it's ultimately not really that interesting of a question. It sounds like it is, but it really isn't, at least to a folklorist. What we think is a lot more interesting is, okay, why are there so many versions of this story? Why do people keep telling this story over and over? Why does it resonate so strongly all over the world? Why does it resonate this strongly? And what can we learn from individual versions of it in their context. What is this, you know, woman over here in Spain telling this version of, I don't know, like Sleepy Beauty or whatever? Like, what, what does the story mean to her? And what does it say about her culture and her experience versus like a dude telling the same story in Alabama where a guy gets to be, you know, a Cinderella character or something. There are actually a lot of male Cinderellas, which is really interesting because culturally we never hear those. So we think that wondering about the meaning of a particular version in a particular context is just way, way, way more interesting than trying to speculate about a question that we will never be able to answer and that wouldn't really tell you that much anyway. Folklorist used to be, in the beginning, there was a lot of effort to find, you know, the original stories of the urtexts. And gradually, folklore as a discipline just really moved away from that concept entirely. Yeah, I do have a quick follow up. Uh, if it's not if it's not uh, too much. No, sure. And it's something it was something with the episode, one of the episodes we're working on that I was trying to like, find out for myself. So it's something I'm not even super sure on. Perry, you helped out a lot with this. What thoughts do you have about folklore existing as something people take away from a piece of centralized media? So whether that's like fan communities or people working together to solve mm -hmm. a mystery or like, like for instance, the situation we're talking about was uh, ARGs in a, in a video game where it's like, it's a mystery. Somebody set it up, but it's always, it's solved by the community that surrounds it. And there's communication and meaning and then their own stories. They take away from it. Like where, where are the like folk, are there folkloric aspects to that kind of communication, even if it's branched from a centralized thing? I, if I am following this, then absolutely. Like, if you're talking about like fan culture or particular subgroups, things like that, part of what makes them what they are is that they have their own folklore. You know, they tell their own story, they have their own sort of community experiences and language and interests and games and you know, all of this stuff. So, I, I think I think I would just say that yes, absolutely. If, if I understood that right, yeah, I, I I think the main sticking point is for me is like the 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 fact that it is around something that is very centralized, has a single author, so like single point of publishing kind of thing. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, um, like the version of this that I know best probably is like fan culture, like fa like a fan fiction culture or something. So say that you have like 
a group of fanfic writers who all write about like Game of Thrones or whatever. Like Game of Thrones is not, you know, a work of folklore. It is a single authored fantasy series, you know, and, you know, TV series. But the stuff that comes out of that community, like the stuff they make together and create together as fans, thousand percent folklore. Well, and even, and correct me on this if I'm overstating something, let's say you had a thing, maybe it's even your school, and out of that is a community like a Discord server or something like that. That would be a folk group that is centered around the study of folk studies. Um, but some of the yep. conversational shortcuts and the references that people use, all of that would be folklore output of that. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. I think we, I think we are, you've set us on a good path there. Yeah, um, it might help to think about the concept of folk groups for this. Yeah. And a folk group can be like as little as two people or as many as, you know, a hundred or something or even more who all share something in particular, like a family is a folk group and like their shared thing is that they're all related or, you know, a community of gamers who are all super passionate about one particular game are also a folk group because they hang out and they talk about that thing. So if you think of, you know, any of these communities as folk groups and their output as a kind of folklore, um, I think that framing might help. I would also recommend looking up um, something that is, it was a couple of years ago now, but um, the concept of the folklore-esque, which is basically the the intersection (laughs) of folklore and popular culture and how pop culture uses folklore and how it's not exactly folklore, but it's doing something with folklore. And I think that might be a fruitful way to think. It's folklore-y. <laughs> it's folk- well, it's folklore-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and if I remember, yeah, I think Trevor Blank wrote quite extensively about that early on too. Yes. That sounds right. So, um, all right. So then the last formal question from me then is, I mean, folklore is something that you've both given your lives to in a lot of ways. There's you know whole academic communities that surround that, and then also independents that surround that. What is it about folklore? Um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but I just want to give you a chance to talk about the you know the richness of it. What is it about folklore and the study thereof that makes it something worthy of people kind of investing that much of their life into? Sarah and I like to talk about folklore and why it's important by saying that it's a way of accessing a kind of everyday magic. Folklore for us is the little things in the world that don't seem that important, but really are and can make or break the way that you experience something, how you understand big things like your family or your sexuality or race or anything like that. These little bits of of folklore that you put together, that you interact with creatively, that you um, use to in- to interact with tradition, but also to make changes in your life and in the world of your group. I think all of that is a kind of magic. And I think that it deserves a close look. Oh, that I was really that. nice. And now I'm going to like ruin it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, no, I love it. And I, I don't, I totally think that stands alone. But I would also add to that that I totally agree with everything that Brittany just said, but folklore is also incredibly powerful because everybody has it, everybody interacts with it, and part of what makes it so powerful is that a lot of people don't even know that they have it, 
They don't know what it is. They don't know how they interact with it. And they don't know how... Or they dismiss it. (laughs) Or they dismiss it. And also how it can use you. So folklore, you know, we love folklore. We love the study of folklore, but it can be used We really do believe like in good, wonderful, incredible, affirming ways in the world. And it can also be used to manipulate people and cause horrible problems, cause terrible beliefs and ideas to spread. And I think knowing what it is, knowing to how to recognize this fabric or these this thread that runs through everyone in so many different ways and literally weaves us all together in this giant web. Learning how to see it is really, really important. That is so cool. We actually have an episode planned on the weaponization of folklore. That's really good. It's yeah. important that people yeah. pay attention to that too. I know I, I wax poetic about you know the beauty and the magic and the art of it, but but it's true. I mean that is true. And to be fair, yeah, is why we love it so much. Right. Yeah. But yes, <laughs> which is which was the question I will say. No, your answer was really good. <laughs> but there is that other aspect of it that definitely needs to be acknowledged as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is, you know, the 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 study of it is a study of us and I think that um that's yeah. super super important. I was wanting to give you a chance to kind of um really get that out there because a lot of people do say, well that's just a myth, that's just a fairy tale, that's just a legend, that's just folklore. And I think we need to get rid of the gist in front of it. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And say, no, this is significant because this is our our story, our narrative. And it says something about us yeah. or something significant about the people from which it arose or something from the people that are trying to use it against another group of people. Absolutely. Yeah. A thousand percent. And so, like, for example, Brittany and I, you know, we're, we're folklorists, but our one of our primary specializations is fairy tales and everything that you just said about the way that people don't recognize or minimize folklore, like that the volume is turned up even higher for fairy tales because it's also coded as being feminine and for children and frivolous and silly. And we profoundly believe and know that fairy tales are actually really, really important and really, really culturally powerful in so many different ways. I mean, like, for example, the the Nazis literally used it as propaganda very effectively, but it can also be used to open up new paths to, you know, seeing yourself reflected back at you in the fairy tales and the folklore that you consume. It can be used in incredibly positive and empowering ways. But if we're stuck just going, oh, it's just a fairy tale, it doesn't matter, it's just folklore, it doesn't matter then none of this is seen. Uh, so we have to learn how to see it I kn- first. I know there's more nuance to it, but also on its face, it's kind of strange to be dismissive of, oh, what the, how is that important? It's the story we tell our children who grow up to be the future. Uh, so, right. like, <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I don't know how that works either. I often yeah. thought that. Yeah. I don't know. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to our guests. Dr. Sarah Clito and Dr. Brittany Warman of the Carter Hall School of Folklore and the Fantastic. Check out our show notes for information about the school, Dr. Sarah Clito, Dr. Brittany Warman, and a ton of other fun and informative resources. If you have any questions, feedback, ideas for a future episode, or anything else, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. Or if you'd like information about sponsoring an episode, a few episodes, or an entire season, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media. 
That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.